Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. You're here today with Kara Williard, and you can check out everything else we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so I am back today for part two of our very deep dive on boot fitting series. And so for those of you who haven't heard part one, I definitely recommend that you pause what you're doing and dive into part one before hearing part two. And that's not only because there's some great introductions to some of the topics in boot fitting that we dive into deeper today, but also because you get a great introduction to Sam Tischendorf, who I am joined by again today for part two. And in part one, you get to find all about why Sam is one of the truly most impressive boot fitters out there. But today for part two, it is all about you, our listeners. And so we spent this episode answering all the questions that we received from our audience over the last couple of weeks. And while that's not totally true, we didn't have time to answer all of the questions. We definitely touched on quite a few. And thankfully, we saw some very common themes and reoccurring questions among many of you. So today's episode, we dove into some of the technical aspects around forward lean and ramp angle and how all of these things are interrelated and how your boot fitter thinks about some of these components when fitting your boots. We also dove into some of the real foot conundrums we've seen out there and some of the better ways to resolve fit issues for these types of feet. We talked about aftermarket liners and different upgrades you can make to your ski boots in addition to just knowing when it's time to upgrade your boots. We also talked about some of the nuances around rigid feet versus flexible feet and some of the things to think about for flat feet, in addition to a lot of topics around custom insoles and why they are so important as the foundation to your fit. Sam and I had a really interesting conversation around women's specific boots and why we both think it's super imperative that we continue to carve a space for women's specific ski boots, in addition to just kind of dissecting some of those biomechanical differences that we see from women and why it's really important to still have this space in the world of boot fitting. We ended on some horror stories and talking about some really rewarding and cool stuff we've seen in addition to some gross stuff as well. And we give our very honest opinion of do-it-yourself boot fitting, which I'm sure you can probably imagine our answer, but stay tuned for more on that. Before we get going too much further, I just want to remind everyone that there's no better time than right now to sign up to become a Blister member. Not only is there a whole slew of incredible benefits such as discounts from some of our favorite brands, discounts from some of our Blister recommended shops, the ability to reach out to us anytime via our personalized gear recommendations, and we can help answer any questions you have and point you in the right direction when it comes to the purchase of your next gear. And this not only is for skis and ski boots, but also running, shoes, and bike stuff, and pretty much anything else. So please reach out to us um, if you're a Blister member or sign up to become one today. But for all active Blister members and anyone else who purchased our 2022-2023 Winter Buyer's Guide, you can now read the digital version on our site. So the best way to do that is going to be under the Winter Buyer's Guide tab and under the General Buyer's Guide tab on our navigation bar. The best bet is going to be if you're already signed into your account, you'll be able to go into those and access our digital guide and get your hands on a whole ton of really interesting information on this upcoming season's gear. And for those who ordered a print guide, it'll be shipping early this coming week. So in just a few days, you will have your hands on a physical copy of our very best buyer's guide to date. So as a Blister member, you receive access to both of those, and you can also just go to our page and order the buyer's guide right now. 
And with that, let's get right into my conversation, part two of our very deep dive on boot fitting. It's all about you, our audience, and the questions you asked us today with Sam Tischendorf. All right. Well, hey, Sam, great to have you back for part two of our very deep dive on boot fitting. I think a lot of people were super interested in part one. And as a result, we got a bunch of really interesting questions to go over today. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on board again. Yeah, I'm psyched to see or hear what people are asking about and hopefully I can sprinkle a little light over their their questions. Yeah, we'll do our best. (laughs) We got a wide range of questions here. And so I think Sam and I are just going to dive into a few. Before we get going on to anything too specific, I know a couple people were just really interested in like what to expect from the fit process. And so we just wanted to point out a couple key factors that might make your experience with your boot fitter um, a little bit easier to understand, like things that you might encounter as you sit down with your fitter. So the first thing we just wanted to talk about is kind of once you're sitting with that fitter, talking with them, and probably at that point, they've asked you a bunch of questions, they're likely to introduce the topic of custom insoles. So Sam, uh, how do you kind of introduce custom insoles into the process? And then let's just kind of expand on why that's such an important part of boot fitting. Yeah, um, custom insoles really, I mean, they're the foundation. Um, manufacturers, when they when they build boots, they spend, I don't know, 25 cents on whatever the, the flat stock insole that the boot comes with, knowing that the majority of consumers are probably going to look to upgrade Um, what goes directly underneath their foot. Um, And the reason that this is kind of encouraged is that, you know, your feet or your foundation, they are sitting within this really rigid plastic vessel. Um, And the insole is, um, there are a bunch of different brands out there. I'm not going to say one is better than the other or start that controversial topic, but they're they're kind of designed in whichever way to support and stabilize the foot within the confines of the ski boot. You know, they they should be introduced to you as a customer as like a fitting tool, um, not as like an upsell, um, even though they kind of are an upsell, but really something that's going to help your foot connect to the ski boot significantly better to try and hold your foot in a more neutral position within the confines of that rigid plastic vessel and just keep it in a consistent place. So, you know, a footbed can be used to help reduce the shearing forwards and backwards in the boot and side to side. It can help to reduce um, excessive pronation and supination and just kind of keep the foot in a yeah, basically a more consistent place within the confines of the boot. It can also be used to cushion the foot a little bit more. You know, maybe the foot's really rigid or it doesn't have a lot of natural padding and soft tissue to the foot. That footbed can be made in a more cushioned manner that can, you know, make the foot feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more cushioned in this rigid Um, environment. It can also be built with a certain amount of structure for that foot that's super flexible, um, that it could then create a a more stable arch profile or help to let the foot um, flex and flatten out and kind of fatigue as much. So it can also help for folks to feel like they can ski longer in the day. Um, Footbeds can also be used to help uh, with Morton's neuromas and weird 
toe situations or heel situations or like ligament things you know you can put guides into the footbed to really just help make the boot feel more like your foot so that when your foot goes into this horrendous rigid plastic vessel um it feels a little bit more at home um and I think that's just, that's kind of the key with a footbed. It, it helps that full customization process to make the boot feel more like you, but also just keeps your foot in control in the boot, you know, where they're not chasing that moving target of you sliding forwards and backwards or side to side within the boot. Um, that's, that's kind of how I explain my footbeds to my customers that, you know, reduces fatigue can make you more comfortable it can really help the fit you know if you've got a size difference between say your left and right foot um that footbed can help fill in the space of the smaller foot or you can kind of shape the heel counter to create a little bit more length so it can be a fitting tool and think of it as a fit and comfort tool as opposed to just throwing more money into an already fairly pricey piece of equipment Yep. Super well said, Sam. I think you really hit on all the major points. So, I mean, the one being is that you really want to achieve that neutral position inside the boot kind of as the foundation for the fit and that a boot fitter should be kind of looking at some of those nuances of your foot, like how rigid or flexible that arch is so that that end footbed product just feels like a pretty natural support. Yeah. And I think that's one thing is like a good boot fitter builds your footbed, it should feel pretty natural and just kind of like it's matching your foot. It shouldn't feel like overly uh, aggressive or anything like that. No. And what really the boot fitter needs to remember and what you as a consumer need to remember is that the boot fitter is not there with a prescription pad. You know, they're not here creating a custom orthotic. It is a footbed. It is a stabilizing device. It's a comfort device. It's filling in the gaps. Um, but it really, really helps. Yeah, big time. And it is the foundation to that fit because like you've mentioned, it's a pretty rigid, unforgiving environment. So instead of chasing a whole multitude of Band-Aid solutions, a lot of times it's just really useful to think of that footbed first and kind of how that footbed is helping hold the foot in a way that, you know, you're not experiencing excess movement or like excess collapsing of the foot um, and just filling in the gaps and allowing that foot to relax after a full day of skiing is essential. Yeah. I'll find myself when I'm chatting with my customer and doing like the the mismatch boot try on that I do, when they talk about one boot versus the other, I'll often have a little side commentary with that discussion that, oh, okay, well, when we put the f- custom footbed in, how it should fit is that it should make your heel feel like this or your toe should feel like that or whatever else. It, it's part of the discussion that I have of like how to pick the boot as well. So it really, it's it's kind of all encompassing. And I think if you aren't offered some sort of support and footbed, you know, maybe rethink your uh, boot fitter choice. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, again, it's like, it's a super controversial topic, particularly here in Telluride with uh, some of uh, certain clientele that, that come in and see us from their background. But um, I'm I'm a firm believer in it. It it really is a a well made footbed. Oof, Mwah. chef's kisses the young kids are Absolutely. saying these days. <laughs> it makes a big difference, <laughs> no doubt. And I think when you're the uh, boot fitter who's watching countless experiences of people's fit get that much better or just completely change because they're finally in that um, footbed with the boot that best matches their foot, it's like 
that's that's our recipe that we go off of is like seeing those uh, countless instances in which the footbed has made it that much better. Yeah. And once I can stabilize your foot in a consistent position within the boot, then it's easy for me to pick where we need to do punches or stretches, where we can predict what needs to happen. um, Because I know that you're going to be in that consistent place within the, the ski boot itself. Yeah, like you said, not a moving target is a great way to go. Awesome. Well, I think that's useful for people. So that, I mean, that should be introduced pretty early on into the fit process. And just thinking of like the stock insoles in a boot are really more of just like a template for your boot fitter to use to create your custom insole. Totally. And a well-fitted footbed, you know, it shouldn't be taking up much more space in the ski boot than what you're pulling out. It's weird how the foot functions and that when you see a custom footbed and you then compare it up against the stock sock liner, they, they seem to be thicker and whatever else, but because it's kind of filling in the gaps, it really doesn't take much more space in the, inside the boot. So do not fear. Don't do not fear. Just fill in those voids. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, I think that's really useful, and people can start to think about that as they go improve their already uh, existing ski boot, or as they look to purchase their next boot. Um, a couple other things we just wanted to point out, maybe one big one being socks. We're just going to touch on this very lightly, but um, when it comes to socks, you know, the sock itself shouldn't be really taking up additional volume where what do you kind of go to as far as socks sam when you have someone on the bench trying on boots thin to win um when your ski boot is new or you're trying on new boots a sock that's thin even and consistent around the foot um that's a little bit more snug than loose is kind of what i like to go for preferably out of a natural um, merino wool or maybe like a little elastin in there so it kind of maintains its shape throughout the day but thin even and consistent also you know long underwear up and out of the cuff of the boot you know buy three quarter length long underwear or chop the seams off the bottom so it does sit at that calf muscle area that makes a really big difference um, in your comfort particularly around the front shin of the ankle yes absolutely and just i mean sometimes the best demonstration is i would like have someone grab a really thick wool or like just like thick bulky ski sock in one hand and then a really thin sock in the other hand and sometimes it's like a quarter of the volume yeah Um, so you just think about how much space you really have to work with inside a well-fit ski boot you really do not need to be jamming excess material in there And that being said, don't throw away some of those moderate thickness ski socks um, because as your boot then does pack out, you can maybe transition to that slightly thicker ski sock, but not seven pairs of socks, not cotton socks. Um, Y'all Americans have tube socks. Um, (laughs) None of these like ridiculous tube socks I see in the shop. Come on, guys. Cotton is not performance (laughs) for ski boots. Um, And... Not those really old school thick woolly socks that your nana knitted for you. It's it really is. It has to be a commercially produced uh, super thin ski sock is really going to work the best. Yes, fair enough. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there any other tips uh, that you want to just offer to anyone shopping for ski boots, like you know that they can think about before they walk into the shop? Wear pants. 
but pants and can lift up above your calf. That is always a little less awkward for everyone. Um, and it's a lot more comfortable for you that your pants aren't super tight around the calf area. Um, you know, your boot fitter should go through a shell, a shell check um, initially with the first uh, round of boots that they try on your feet. That allows a boot fitter to see how your foot and you feel how your foot feels within the confines of that shell space so that you know that they're not really pulling the wool over your eyes and putting you in a shell that's far too small or far too big. Um, a shell fit is something that's kind of interesting to chat with your boot fitter about. Um, but yeah, I yeah, think those are kind just, of the pearls. Sorry, just uh, dive into that shell fit uh, just a tiny bit more just so people can understand because I think um, the shell fit tells a lot to us as boot fitters, but then also what can the customer glean from that process? Yeah, for sure. Um, so shelf it is when you pull the inner liner out of the ski boot um, and place the customer's foot in there, sometimes with the footbed, sometimes without, depends on what part of the fit process that you're up to. But having the toes kind of wriggle and, and kiss the front of the boot and seeing how much space there is at the back of the heel um, from a visual perspective or like a touch perspective from a boot fitter, they might use some wooden dowels or their fingers to feel the amount of space between the heel and the back of their boot. That gives gives the boot fitter an idea as to how much space um, your foot's taking up in the shell and thus then adding the liner to that, knowing that the liner is going to then pack out a bit more. Depending on what kind of fit you as a consumer are wanting or the boot fit is trying to direct you will gauge how much space you need in your shell fit. But for you as a consumer, being able to slide your foot backwards and forwards and side to side allows you to see and feel how much space you realistically do actually have in the ski boot or where there is a narrow point that maybe your boot fitter might say to you and predict, okay, you might need a little punch or a stretch across the forefoot or maybe by the big toe because there's not a ton of that sliding space available. So the shell fit can tell a lot of stories and I'll sometimes in particular use a liner fit and then a shell fit on a, a customer that, you know, we're really tossing up between two boots and trying to fine tune that fit as much as possible that I can show them, okay, yes, this one's maybe initially feeling a little bit more snug, uh, but when you put your foot in the shell, can you feel that there's that extra space in there? We know that when you wriggle around, it's going to you know, the line is going to pack up and take up a bit more of that space. So you're going to be fine or, okay, you can see that this boot is far too big for you. That's why you're gripping your toes and you're coming in with sore shins is because you can slide almost two of your <laughs> feet just in the shell. So it can be used as a really nice communication tool. Um, but also for us as boot fitters, it gives us just more eyes inside the boot itself. Absolutely. Yep. Very, very good to think about um, both for the boot fitters and the customers alike. So thanks for expanding on that, Sam. And I think now we'll just dive into kind of the first theme of questions that we got. And we're going to keep it kind of more uh, general just so that we don't go um, too specific down a rabbit hole because we certainly can in this regard. But the first question um, actually came from Rod Frudenberg, and he was wondering what the relationship between forward lean, ramp angle, flex index, the ankle and calf range of motion, shin length, calf dimensions, rebound. He pretty much listed all the factors. Um, I think first Sam and I might just kind of dive into like at the very basics, like forward lean and ramp angle and why that's kind of a focal point of 
fitting um, because we're kind of looking at optimizing the angle of the boot to the customer. So where do you want to go with that one, Sam? Yeah, that was a question that involved a lot of things and everything is absolutely real related. So I think we answered it perfectly. Great. Everything is all related and it's important and good job. And we do, um, we do focus on it as bootleggers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's start breaking it up. Um, like you said, the relationship between forward lean and ramp angle, that is to do with the, the forward lean angle being the basically, I don't like to get super duper techie with talking about numbers and angles because I can sometimes lose my words and my thought processes. I do really enjoy speaking in more simple terms. I have blonde hair, I like to think of things a little more simply. There's usually seven things going on in my brain, so I have to break it down. But I digress. Forward lean and ramp angle. Forward lean you can kind of take as your basic um, parameter thinking about the upper cuff and that weird angle that the ski boot forces you to stand at. The ramp angle is then the angle underneath your foot, and that's kind of that high heel feeling um, that you get, and it it's there's an angle between the base of the boot and where your foot sits created by the zeppa or the boot board and that angle along with the forward lean angle can create another angle and the number that is typically indicated as the forward lean number on a ski boot now depending on the type of ski boot and i mean type not necessarily brand, but type of ski boot, they're going to sit in a different range. So you might find a more aggressive plug race boot to have a sharper forward lean angle and a touring boot to have a more upright forward lean angle and kind of lower ramp angle um, because of the range of motion that the ankle needs to go through. And then most of our recreational ski boots um, that most of us ski on the resort fall somewhere between the touring boot angle and the, um, the high performance race boot angle. And so that's where forward lean and ramp angle can change. Now, there are a gazillion ways to skin the cat and there are a ton of different theories as to what the optimal angle is for the skier. Um, and this is where sometimes our boot fit room can get really <laughs> heated because we follow one Kool-Aid and some of our folks we work with follow another Kool-Aid and then there's this other Kool-Aid out there um, in terms of ramp angle. And so I can't say that there is um, a, a magical number that your body should have to be able to move and that a ski boot should be at and this brand does it wrong and this brand does it right. That's me dipping into far too much hot water. But basically, the body needs to be able to move and be stable within the forward lean and ramp angle of the ski boot. And thus, what I mean is that the the leg needs to fit in the throat of the boot comfortably in order to sit in the boot see this is where i'm starting to talk double dutch but we need that i wish i could draw pictures on a podcast um, <laughs> maybe but, we'll include a picture for 
Um, but the the tibia, but not only like the tib fib, but the calf muscle and the anterior muscles need to fit in that throat of the boot. So that can create so much anatomical variation for a set boot brand Mm -hmm. that there are some bodies that maybe work better in a more upright boot or a more forward boot or maybe need shims in the front of the shin or shims at the back of the calf in order to try and get that congruent shape between the in the throat of the boot Hopefully I'm making sense from a listening standpoint. Yeah, because all we're really looking for is nice, even pressure yeah. along, you know. So that's yeah. the biggest thing here is that that, fit, uh, that leg is fitting in the throat of the boot in a way that there is even pressure. And then the ramp angle comes into play with maybe, if I can be so bold to say, the ankle range of motion ability. Mm-hmm. And the ankle needs to have a certain amount of range of motion to be able to deal with this perfect congruency through the tibia part of the boot or the shin part of the boot, but then the foot part as well. So thus the heel and the forefoot can then feel balanced and not just have all the pressure on the toes um, and the heel rising up or all the pressure on the heel and the toes rising up. So that's where ramp angle and forward lean come into play. Um, it's where heel lifts um, and gas pedals can come into play from a boot fitting standpoint. So either wedging under the heel or underneath the forefoot to help that ramp angle. Um, that is also another kind of trick to work with forward lean ramp angle. Now coming into flex index and stiffness of the ski boot that can also influence ramp angle forward lean depending on how much range of motion someone can have through their ankle Um, and that range of motion through their ankle whether or not they're actually physically able to move a ski boot or not move a ski boot depends on kind of basically the vibration response of the tibia to the plastic of the boot as well as how easy it is for that ankle to actually move through the skiing phase, as it were, or the turn. Hopefully I'm still making sense. Um, And thus that brings us back around to Rod's question of ankle and calf range of motion. So it is all connected. You can look at them all super separately. You can swallow a Kool-Aid theory or you can kind of play around with it as mm-hmm. well. I personally, I've seen certain successes with ensuring that someone has enough ankle range of motion to deal with forward lean, and if not, using a vice like a heel lift to assist with that. But I also like with customers who have the time and the tolerance to play around with heel lift height, um, plastic adjustment, booster straps, All of those kind of things that actually influence how you pressure the shin of the boot and drive the ski boot. Um, Some people really want to take it on board to try and increase their own range of ankle range of motion. Some people don't have the ability to do that because they have a bony blockage. Um, There are so many factors that can influence forward lean, ramp angle, whatever you want to call it, that it's it's really individual based. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think the point being is that, I mean, we can maybe extrapolate a little bit more on ankle dorsiflexion, but the point being is that your boot fitter should be looking at some of these factors and whether the boot fitter is kind of looking at each of these separately and then kind of coming up with not like one set equation, but you know, attuning certain things that they're doing in your boot to certain factors that they're seeing with your foot and your biomechanics. Um, that's really what it comes down to. And that there should, you know, be some discussion maybe of ankle joint range of motion or kind of looking at certain things about your foot or your situation um, when it comes to, you know, maybe adding a little bit of a heel wedge or, you know, changing the forward lean of a boot because there's several manufacturers out there that do allow for some adjustment of the forward lean angle and things like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's each brand does it slightly differently. Each brand has a slightly different angle out there. I can't remember them all. A lot of it can come down to ankle range of motion. If that is your theory of skiing, you're wanting to add to the the system. So <laughs> I'm a big believer in the influence of ankle range of motion into comfort and fit of the ski boot. A lot of people aren't. Yep. Yep. It's, it's important. <laughs> I agree. I would agree. Of all the years I've spent uh, as a boot fitter, I think ankle joint range of motion was definitely one that I thought of thought about the most. Absolutely. And I, I like to try and encourage it. And often if I get to a point with a customer who does not want me to make any form of forward lean adjustment um, or they want me to do the opposite of what they need, um, they I'm often seeing them in a cyclical pattern with certain um, irritations that present because of their ankle range of motion. There is nothing else wrong with their fit. It's purely because they are not allowing me to deal with their ankle mobility, immobility, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or they're making me do the opposite of what they actually need. Yes, which there actually is schools of thought that I've seen out there that's like, oh, no, that's actually the opposite of what I think you need. But, you know. We'll, yeah. we'll mess around with, yeah, whatever yeah, theories. Yeah. Um, and so the second part to Rob's question was, does it come to personal preference or, you know, does any of this even matter? So I guess to summarize, yes, it really matters. Um, and that a personal preference is an element to all of this. But if you don't, you know, know a ton about your personal biomechanics or like you haven't really like thought about a lot of this, I would just maybe go to a boot fitter and kind of be open to this and kind of, you know, thinking about like, oh, what is my ankle dorsiflexion? And when I am, you know, standing in a forward ski position, do I feel nice, even pressure between the heel and the ball of my foot? Things like that. that you can kind of start to visualize how some of this plays out. Um, and then you can start to think about like, you know, what is more an optimal fore aft balance? Um, do you kind of just want to touch on how fore aft balance plays into all this, Sam? I mean, I do think we've probably covered the technical side of fore aft balance, but yeah, it, it can come down to personal preference. Fore aft balance is going to, and I'm not a ski instructor, so I don't want to speak out of context, but your fore aft balance and your positioning then in a fore-aft position is kind of your steering and your ability to pressure the front of the ski to engage the tips to actually get your skis to turn. So having good control of that and having correct pressure fore-aft within your boot ensures that you are pressuring the ski in the correct fore-aft position based on where it's mounted that then you can actually get the, the skis to slide and rotate around. I mean, in the end, like my final take-home message probably for this topic a little bit is 
maybe some of you deal in the world of running shoes and you know there are all different biomechanical theories of running as to how you should run you should heel strike you should midfoot stance you should toe off you should only strike on your toes you should wear a zero drop shoe you should wear a high stack cushion shoe you should wear a anti-pronation shoe they all work well in certain circumstances it's realizing at the time that there comes a time where your body isn't necessarily fitting into the biomechanical theory that you want to flow in. So for me, I would love to wear, say, a zero drop shoe. I think the idea of it's kind of nifty. My body does not allow me to do that. I have to have some sort of pitch. I can't mm -hmm. have a ton of pitch. But again, it's like it's realizing when to pull the plug and be like, I need to address this. Yes, absolutely. And I think just being able to contextualize why four aft balance is important and why all of this is important is really useful. So I think, thanks for that explanation. That was um, a good way to think of it. It's your, it's yeah. your steering. So it's your ability to steer your skis. Absolutely. Awesome. And then one last piece, um, we had this question come in from a few different people. And so um, we've kind of hit on all the factors, but there's just one other little element I want to sprinkle in and kind of just hear your thoughts on it, Sam, and that is the aspect of binding delta and how this may or may not play into the system. I think binding delta plays into this factor significantly more if you have a small ski boot size. Um, that means that if you're in, say, like a 22.5 um, with a binding delta of five millimeters, that's going to have more of an effect on your skiing position than someone with a five millimeter binding delta spread out over a size 26.5. So binding delta is, I think, bigger influenced by boot sole length than what it is uh, generally. I think with the introduction of grip walk, that's kind of changing a little bit of binding delta. I think binding delta on more modern bindings these days too is a less obvious thing as well. Like they are bind gripper binders these days are definitely a little bit more flat um, heel to toe. So that's are we splitting hairs? Mm -hmm. Maybe, but certainly if you have a wee foot, uh, binding delta certainly can have a bigger play. Yeah, something to think about. Awesome. Totally. Cool. Well, we'll move on from that. We could go uh, obviously a lot deeper, um, but there's a bit of an intro to some of the aspects of the relationship between all of those elements for lean ramp angle, calf dimensions, etc. Um, next up, I think we're going to just kind of talk about like some of these more specific questions. This one came in from Paul Buchanan, and he was wondering what the limitations are of adding padding or using a higher volume liner if you want to retain high performance. Um, so some people like Paul, for example, has a super small heel, narrow forefoot, um, and is constantly dealing with heel slip. And so I know that we can't really, you know, necessarily put all the elements together. We haven't seen his foot. We don't know, um, you know, if there's something else going on, even maybe sometimes related to ankle dorsiflexion. But I am just kind of wanting to dive into this as far as like, is padding a good way to deal with these really narrow heels, people who are always experiencing movement in their ski boot, um, or what are some of the other methods? I know people also reached out and were really curious about aftermarket liners. And so I'm just kind of gonna, we can kind of dive into like, 
when do aftermarket liners come into play here? And then, you know, this whole notion of adding material to the boot. Um, what are some of the limitations there? Because we definitely run into some some limitations when it comes to taking up volume. Totally. Um, the old skinny heel, um, which I think, like, let's say, well above 50% of the ski population has a really narrow heel and a wider forefoot. The instep height is a thing that can be a little different, but most people kind of have, a lot of people have that very triangular kind of foot shape. And retaining that heel from a starting point is really the most important part. Um, out of Project 165, we call the instep heel kind of wrapping area the Hoffman hook after Greg. Capitaine Greg Hoffman. <laughs> Love you, Greg. Hey, Greg. Um, <laughs> but being able to kind of wrap that that heel and that instep and hold it through the the essential part of the ski boot is super important. So if you're starting out with buying a new pair of boots within reason, folks, um, going narrow in the heel and sometimes you're then feeling like the boot's a bit too narrow in the forefoot is okay because you can make the boot a little bit wider as long as it's fitting okay through the instep. But you want to start with as snug a fit and feeling through the heel as you can um, that is comfortable. You know, having that heel held in place after taking into consideration ankle range of motion, so on and so forth, it's easier to make a boot a little bit wider and a little bit longer in the forefoot as long as we can have that heel being held a bit better through the back of the, the boot. So starting out with a boot that's feeling more snug through the rear portion makes a really big difference. From there, certainly things like different EVA foam type pads that can be glued onto the liner uh, makes a really big difference. It's kind of the easiest way of us trying to snug through the liner. It has to be done super carefully, especially on the medial side or the inside of the ankle because your posterior tibialis um, artery and nerve cross that area and we don't want to go like pinching it and compressing it and then getting a cold numb foot mm -hmm. um, but using things like L and J bars um, glued onto the liner can certainly help as long as someone's not pulling their liner in and out of the boot too much if they're getting to a point with their liner that it really is just super broken down, maybe there's someone who perspires a lot and that material breaks down super quickly. The liner is just like old. They've skied a ton, but the shell is in good condition. That can be a great time to think about that aftermarket liner and thinking about, okay, well, how was my foot in general in that boot did I find that I packed out the liner way too quickly or did it take me a long time to pack out that liner that factor can then influence maybe the type of aftermarket liner you go with or the volume of the aftermarket liner you can go with and it also comes down to everyone's personal tolerance you know are you someone who's really stoked on sizing themselves down in a size smaller and a volume smaller well great like you know what to expect in terms of numbness and tingling and you might want to go with that super high volume liner if you're someone who likes a little bit more of a spacious fit or maybe you're looking for some weird thing with a, a touring boot that you want something that to feel a little bit more different you might go with you know returning to that same liner that the boot came with 
um, rather than going to an aftermarket liner. It's really interesting how much R&D actually goes into the manufacturing of a liner to a boot. It's not a complete afterthought. It's a whole package as to how the, the shell interacts with the liner as a whole package. Um, yeah, super Definitely. interesting from that side. But, you know, there's there's so much padding that you can add. There's a, When it comes to touring boots, that's a whole different beast mm-hmm. on its own because of the movement. Padding can kind of come off. It can get sweaty or wet and move around and then cause blisters. But starting off with that smaller, snugger fit through the heel and then looking into the aftermarket liners out there. Um, I am by no means sponsored by any aftermarket liner company. Um, and I've had the best success working with Intuition Liners and ZipFit. They are both really awesome quality liners that depending what you need to do with them, you have a lot of adaptability. That ZipFit liner just crushes with what you can actually do with it. Much to some discussions I have with the guys at ZipFit, like, I'll often replace tongues from their liners for different tongues because I want to get a different feeling or I'll like sew other bits on (laughs) here and there, but that's just my own arts and crafts choosing. But that cork injected liner, being able to add material over time or take material away really provides this schmick, like congruent, beautiful fit and feeling around the foot. I don't actually own a pair. I really want to get a pair this season, but I've skied in them a few times just to like feel them out so I know how it works, how they feel. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready for a pair myself. But they're a big investment, but they are totally worth it because you will have that liner for a really long time. And the adjustability and the ability to be able to continue to lock that heel and ankle in makes a really big difference from a longevity of the shell standpoint. Totally. And I mean, my uh, full disclaimer, like people have heard with my finicky foot, I have kind of resorted to zip fit liners for a lot of different reasons. And I have about 500 days in mind. So, you know, thinking about the investment there, it's definitely been more than worthwhile. And um, just having that method where you're able to add volume, and then add volume in a material that isn't necessarily going to be changing shape all the time, such as a lot of different, you know, EVA foams will, but the cork itself just maintaining a more consistent fit. So um, being able to, you know, add volume, especially for that really narrow heel or just super low volume foot, there is some promise there in that you can always add a bit more. And that new touring liner that they put out last year, I popped a few customers into it. It seems to really you still get range of motion for the hike mode which is awesome like you're really not limiting as much of that ankle range of motion as you would with maybe some other brands out there which is fantastic because the range of motion of boots these days is getting more and more you want your liner to be able to kind of keep up with that Mm -hmm. but again that adaptability the less blisters i've seen particularly girls having with that liner um it's it's great. Yeah, they've they've done a good job on that. That standing. Yeah, and of course, uh, our managing editor Luke Coppa, he actually put that GFT in quite a few different touring boots last year, including ones that had a whole lot of range of motion. And you know, so it, it was. It's been an interesting trial to kind of see how that liner interfaces with some of these really uh, great walkable boots. And so, um, you know, it's good to know that there is options even in the touring realm these days. Yeah. 
Yeah. And especially, you know, if you are someone who is pulling your liners in and out for whatever reason, like maybe you just don't like your knuckles and don't want to have, you know, skin on your knuckles and that's why you pull your liners out <laughs> all the time. I don't know. Um, it's it's a it's an easy fix because it means that when you go to pop the liner in either from your foot into the shell or putting the liner in by hand um, and then putting your foot in that package, you're not getting rid of all that padding that your boot fit is painstakingly crafted for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so I think that's useful. And then I know Andrew Davis also wrote in and was really curious about aftermarket liners. So we've kind of discussed some of that here. Um, but then there is the new Atomic Mimic professional liner as well, which I had one fit last year. I'm not sure how much of that liner you've worked with, Sam, but that's another liner of where you can add volume. I have looked at that liner and like tinkered around with it, but I have got no fit experience on it, to be honest, unfortunately. It looks pretty schmick and I think it is a really great um, investment, but I, and like in that high performance boot category, I do think it's awesome, but I, I can't make a lot of commentary on it. I mean, given it's made by Atomic, it probably crushes. And then Patrick Klepps wrote into us with some similar questions. Um, So he was kind of wanting us to outline the life expectancy of a boot and its liner. And so I think um, we actually had this question a couple of times. And so, you know, another person, Amy, was wondering, how do you know when your boots are starting to wear out? And so kind of in that similar vein, you know, there is like some of those kind of rough numbers that we throw around. Um, But Sam, how do you kind of, you know, put it in customers' heads as far as like, oh, this might be an issue of your boot just being packed out. And when do you typically start to see that process occur? Well, if your boots are seven years old, it's time to change them, folks. Preferably if they're probably five years old, it's time to change them. Um, it's it's a tricky question. What's the life expectancy of a boot and its liner? It can really depend on the skier, their tolerance, the plastics, whatever else. But um, there's a safety concern. So I try and encourage my customers, even if they're only like, say, 10 to 20 days a year skiers, um, to trade out their boots kind of every three to five years and part of that comes from my world of like running shoes and evas and like the foam in the liner of the boot it has a certain shelf life you've got to like use it so it keeps springy and keeps it alive but you can't use it too much that it then compresses but if you don't use it it also will like kind of go stale and disintegrate on the shelf too so there's like this weird fine line with how foams work um and so that three to five years maybe you go then for an aftermarket liner if you still are stoked on the shell or maybe you just want to upgrade the whole package because technology may have changed whatever it is um that's kind of my global timeline Brands will say maybe 150 to 200 skier days on their boots. Again, that's kind of, that's such a ballpark figure. You can't really set it in stone. Like Mm -hmm. someone who is a little heavier set, someone who is a bit more lighter in mass, they're going to push the liner and the plastic out a bit differently. Someone who's a really aggressive driving skier is going to work that plastic a little differently. It's it's based on so many different variables. Um, My concern for saying if your boots are seven years or older, that 
comes down to the plastic and the life of the plastic and the elastic elements to the nylon or non-elastic elements to the nylons and the plastics that they made out of, they will degrade over time. And that's where you see like like these lines and ski resorts of like crumbly plastic uh, because people's boots have like blown up walking or god forbid in their their bindings and their boots can crack like plastic has a life yeah you've yeah. seen it like we will get like a couple of season and like these people just walk a trail of plastic into the shop and you're like all right are you gonna clean up after yourself mate no, i'm it. joking um <laughs> maybe time but they come in a little sheepish and i've definitely had people be like well can you fix this and i'm like absolutely not do you want to keep your neck we are not going to try and glue this back together <laughs> um, similar to being said, like heel and toe pieces, please, please, please change those whenever you possibly can. Yep. They are like the hardest part last season for us to try and get our hands on. Like manufacturers did Supply not have any issues. available. <laughs> yep. But keep an eye on those. That's your connection to your binding. That's a super safety thing. And I'm a bit of a safety nerd. So yeah, the plastic can degrade after that seven years, but like I'll have some ski instructors or ski patrollers that are changing boots every single season because they just wear through the plastic and the liner and be it the people that they are, like how they ski, whatever. And then I'll have the same people that ski just the same amount and they will have their boots for five years. There is yep. no rhyme or reason. Totally. So I think uh, there isn't one settled answer, but if you guys have found a boot shell that works really well for you and it's still in decent shape and it's not like over five plus years old and the heel and toe pieces are still being manufactured and you have nice, crisp, new heel and toe pieces on there, it's maybe worth thinking about an aftermarket liner. Um, totally. You know, I know... ZipFit being one and then the Atomic Mimic Professional being another. There's also Intuition liners. Um, Palau so, liners, DSP yeah. liners. There's, yeah. There's all kinds of, of options. So if you've, if you've settled on a shell and you're not quite willing to let it go, so long as it's still like going to be a safe option for you, I think there's a lot of validity to the aftermarket liner route just because shells in some ways can outlive the liner itself. Totally. Um, and then I guess we'll just dive a little bit into this as well, like some of the other aftermarket upgrades that people can make to boots. Um, I know like one would be a booster strap. So when might it be a good option to put a booster strap on a boot? Um, booster straps are really creme de la creme. Um, they, they can help just refine your fit. They can be used for, as so many fit tools as well. Um, you know, they can help to make a boot feel a little bit stiffer. They can make it feel a little bit more responsive. They can make your leg feel more connected to the shell. They can help that really slender lower leg be more connected to the shell as well. So they are such a fantastic tool. They come in different, um, strengths, uh, which is great. Yeah, definitely an option. They're a pain in the neck to install. Get your boot fitted to do them. Maybe tip them a 10 or a 20. Yeah, it's like oh, a little harder. I mean, tip <laughs> them 50 bucks to it's install the booster strap actually think yeah and like let alone trying to find matching screws and t-nuts exactly. to like uh t-nuts and bolts to like in install in the end really um is like job. half the time but it really they they feel great they they ski really nicely they're definitely worth the hype um because of everything that they can they can do to help i honestly cannot think of a con of a booster strap other than they're a pain in the neck to install yep. at times agreed
I will I will usually if I'm doing booster installs, I'll say to people it's um uh night work. Like we'll do it yeah. once the, the store is closed. Like drop them off for me. You'll they'll you'll be able to pick them up before the lift starts spinning tomorrow. I am going to do it with either a PBR a random bottle of wine I've been given or some tequila and just have a great time doing it. Fair enough. I, <laughs> I agree with that. Um, awesome. So yeah, there's something to be said for other aftermarket upgrades. Uh, booster shops can go a long way and a lot of people will put booster shops onto pretty much any boot that they buy for good reason. Totally. Um, and then I think next, I just want to dive into another kind of nuanced fit question. This came from Greg Smith. And so, you know, he kind of gave us some of his statistics, what type of skier he is, but he mostly just pointed out that he has very flat, narrow feet and large ankle bones. So I just kind of wanted to dive into this question um, because I think there's something to be said between this like kind of flat footed person and whether or not they need a custom insole. And that can be a case by case basis, but I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on that, Sam. And then also hear why someone with a flat foot still can benefit from having a stable foot, especially when it comes to like huge bony prominences, like an ankle bone. Um, so you know, there's several factors here. And unfortunately, we can't see Greg's foot and give him exactly the right answer. But I just kind of want to hear you point out some of these interactions between the flat foot, footbeds, and then the bony prominences. Yeah. Greg, thanks for a killer question. I have questions for you. So I wish you were here and we could like look at your foot and, and work it out. But, mm -hmm. you know, a flat, narrow foot with large ankle bones, it sounds like um, what I would, and please don't take offense to this. I just have like just different descriptions to how I think of foot shapes in my my head like you could potentially be a pencil foot so that long slender shallow foot um and that's going to come down to like what your instep measurement is as to maybe directing you where you're going to go from a shell size perspective. You know, if your two sizes smaller in your instep relative to the length of your foot, we might find that maybe we actually have to size you down in order to be able to try and get some more hold through the instep um, and then push the length of your toe out. That's also going to be dependent on how flexible your mid-tarsal joint is. So your windlass mechanism, mid-tarsal joint whatever you want to call it um that is going to be a factor for you greg as well as to which direction you go with fit and footbed and how your footbed is going to function and the footbed like kara said it's going to have something to do with your um, bony prominences are you a pencil foot that's super flexible and you fall to the inside edge of the the ski boot thus your poor little malleoli get absolutely oh. nailed every season um, and you need to have that area punched out um, because you haven't had a footbed in there do you need to have a really nice supportive footbed you know there are so many different ways to skin this cat depending on so many different factors but that would be kind of my starting point in complete agreeance with cars like looking at okay where do your measurements lie as to what boot i will initially put you maybe get you trying on um and looking where those voids are that i'm going to need to kind of chase around um and then what is your foot actually doing from a functional perspective how am i able to support and drive that foot within the confines of the boot so those poor little ankle bones don't get absolutely destroyed 
Yeah. And I think you hit on the really crucial point here, which is the flexibility of that flat foot could determine a lot as far as the insole. Um, I think there's a bit of like a myth out there that like, oh, I have a flat foot. I don't need an insole. Um, So Sam, do you just kind of want to dive into that a bit further as far as why the flat foot still might require some support in a neutral position? And this again is like a little bit of a sensitive topic for some folks, but certainly it comes on the... um, our master fit kind of way of teaching and training, but certainly the um, the more flexible your foot is, the more it can adapt and like mold to a particular shape um, in a boot. So actually giving it some structure and support with a footbed makes a really big difference. Some people then might say, well, I've got this really rigid cavus high arched foot. I don't need a footbed because my foot holds stable. Well, your foot then it doesn't have the ability to act as a shock absorber. Mm-hmm. It's just this rigid brick. Um, we use the footbed, we make it softer. We allow that to actually work as a shock absorber, which keeps you more comfortable in the long run. Yep. That's huge. So yeah, that flexible foot, um, you know, needs some structure and then that rigid foot typically is going to need some shock absorption. And so that's again, just another benefit of the insole. And so even if you have that really flat foot or a crazy rigid high arched foot, like myself, there's still a lot to be said for what the insole can do for your foot in particular. Totally. And to be honest, that foot that's um, flat and rigid, that foot that's flat and rigid, oh, it needs love and it needs some guidance. Um, It really is that super hyper duper flexible foot that we can kind of push into any which direction. Um, That's where things we can be like a little more vague with. Like you can put those feet, uh, those footbirds in the wrong boots And those customers wouldn't necessarily know if it's just made in a super mellow way. Um, There's so many different ways, again, to like deal with that really hypermobile, flat or high arched foot. Um, It's just it's on a case by case basis. But a footbed across the board constructed in slightly nuanced ways is really helpful. Yep. Super interesting. And so thanks, Greg, for kind of giving us something to think about with regard to that question, um, I think there's a lot to be said there for what, where your foot lies, but still kind of having support in a certain way and how that insole is going to be effective for you as an individual. Awesome. I think next and probably last question for this edition, um, I just wanted to dive into this topic with you, Sam, because you're especially knowledgeable in this realm. And it's a super important topic, especially more recently as a lot more has kind of been done on this front in both directions. So Julia was asking um, about women specific boots. So her question was rumor has it that boots aren't actually women specific. And is this true? Or are there certain things that make a boot women specific? And I guess I'll just preface this by saying there's kind of two directions right now. There's the direction of certain brands that are still really making women-specific products with certain features that might cater a bit differently or better to a woman's biomechanics. And then there's also a lot of boots out there that are more falling into like a unisex realm so that women who are a 22.5 can get a 130 flex boot, but it's not necessarily a women-specific boot. And so we're kind of seeing, and we've had this debate at Blister quite a bit, or at least this discussion is like, what are the advantages to a women's specific approach to things like ski boots? And then what are the advantages to more of a unisex approach? So I just kind of want to dive into this topic and hear 
both from your background as a podiatrist and kind of understanding like maybe women's biomechanics, like where you kind of think about this question and also like what you think some of the better approaches to addressing this are. Sam. Absolutely. Uh, thanks to Julia for asking the question. I always love talking about women's product and women's yeah. specific product. And to be honest, like there are some days where I'm completely on the fence about my opinion of it. Um, but to answer the first portion of the question, um, rumor has it that boots aren't actually women specific. Well, it depends on the portion of the boot that we're talking about. So, to be honest, the clog of the boot or the lower of the boot pretty much across every brand is exactly the same men to women. Now, I'm willing to be corrected, but I don't think that there is a brand out there that makes a women-specific clog um, to actually make a mold for a ski boot for the clog is like a gazillion million dollars. And thus, one of the arguments is just the the price of ski boots would increase exorbitantly mm -hmm. more if they were to make a women-specific clog. So the upper boot, um, the liner uh, with certain manufacturers is what sets them apart being women-specific versus unisex, as it were. There are occasions, I feel, where women belong in men's boots, and there are occasions where I believe men belong in women's boots. Mm -hmm. So, And that's because of the physical shape um, of their their feet and their bodies and their lower leg. You know, there are some women who have these really lovely tall tibias and um femurs that they need to have that taller cuff coming through the the throat of their their boot um or through the, the their shin area um so often being in that more unisex um men's boot will work better for them the other side of that is that the men's boot that is a um the, ma the male anatomy that is maybe a little bit shorter, maybe a little more shapely lower set calf is actually going to work a little bit better with a female shaped ski boot. So having that shorter calf, having a little bit more of that scalloping, having a little bit more adaptability coming in that calf area um, can be why a male might maybe go towards a ski boot. Maybe they're a little bit more petite in stature. Maybe they just have a small foot. Similarly, women can have a really big foot, really tall body, um, stronger in stature. They might need that men's boot. But I really do believe that there is a specific place um, for women's product in the market. I think Anatomically, if you look at a male and female across, like through the body, they yep. are completely different. Our mm -hmm. circulation and how our body functions is completely different. You cannot put a Band-Aid across the two. And when you do put a Band-Aid across the two, they just put the Band-Aid towards men's product and fitting the male um, consumer, which these days women's buying capacity is getting bigger and bigger. Like one of the biggest selling skis in North America was a female ski for several years. So women are buying stuff like I feel if they're going to make a universal boot, it has to take into consideration both masculine and feminine anatomy. You totally. can't just like force female into male anatomy. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing as we've like seen more of this like unisex discussion is like, well, who 
is the product being designed for it? It's if it's still being designed by men and for men, but then they're calling it unisex, that's obviously going to be problematic. Like the women's biomechanics and kind of unique aspects of anatomy have to come into that discussion as well. But that said, I think there's still a lot to be said, like when it comes to ski boots themselves, why there should be an emphasis on women's specific products. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like from a warmth perspective, circulation, you know, women's blood is focused to the hip pelvis torso area because of preparedness for birthing minions. Um <laughs> It's it, it makes women colder. They do need to have a warmer liner. Like it's it's science. Um, one thing that I do think manufacturers could do better on is the smaller size and the ratio of like the buckle placement and the buckle size to that smaller size boot. Um, we're finding with some of the smaller sized um women's boots when you're flexing and driving that that ski boot the buckles can catch if they've not been ratioed out properly totally and just to be like really clear and specific the things that you are typically seeing that are different in women's specific boots are going to be a shorter cuff height uh a little Depending. bit shorter cuff height, a little bit more scalloping, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more adaptability in the cuff. Mm-hmm. And then the liner is typically more anatomically shaped for the female foot. So taking into consideration a more tapered heel shape, a narrower um, kind of waist of the foot as well. Yep. And all of that's super important. Some of the things that we could point out just as far as like more common differences that we're seeing in women's biomechanics, I guess the one that I think to a lot would be the quadricep angle. So do you just want to kind of touch on how that might affect a little bit how a woman is standing in a ski boot? Yeah, totally. The Q angle, so the hip to knee ratio and that angle that it creates that then influences the knee to ankle. That is a really big biomechanical change, um, women versus men. So it means that women can typically be a little bit more internally rotated or Jenny knock kneed. Um, And that in itself changes how a female can ski. Now, I feel that that influences more the canting side of things and looking at the boot base angulation um, and the skiing side cut, so on and so forth, rather than necessarily the boot shape itself. But thus also ensuring that boots for women have cuff alignment adaptability is super important too. Definitely. So that's just another thing to think about. Again, you know, not without the footbed as a part of that equation, but knowing like from personal experience that my quadricep angle does tip me on my inside edge and that I've seen that quite a bit from some of my other female customers as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are some folks, um, that are the, the, some women that are the complete opposite who are really bowed and, and externally rotated cowboy style legs. And they also need to be adapted, um, pretty easily because that can have a big effect on the hips too. Yep. Yep. So again, no one uh, straight shot answer at any of this, but all good things to think about, especially when it comes to uh, this aspect of women specific ski yeah. boots. And like being open minded to women's products, like taking on the sensitivity that um, women might be really badass skiers and they might maybe need a, b- a men's boot. Women might be a really badass skier. And now these days they're making badass women's ski boots too. So there is there is that really great balance um, of product coming out more and more. But should you 
choose to decide that product only needs to really be unisex, great, but please take into consideration the anatomical differences, the center of mass difference between men and women, the Q angle difference, the flexibility difference between men and women, and ensure that it's just not men's product that women have to wear. Yes. Well said. Thank you, Sam. (laughs) I like it. Couldn't have said it better myself. So you heard it here with Sam Tischendorf. (laughs) But damn it, we do need women's product. (laughs) We do. Perfect. Well, I think we'll just end on one kind of or two kind of funny antidotes or questions that um, were asked by Vitamin I just to end on a kind of weird note today. So Vitamin I, he first of all was asking about any horror stories. So any noteworthy injuries or horror stories of things we've seen occur due to a poor fit. So I'll extend that one to you in just a minute, Sam. And then he also was wondering about, we actually had a couple questions about DIY boot punching or DIY boot work. And so I just want to hear your thoughts on both of those questions. Do I have opinions or what? Um, (laughs) I wish I had photos of the weird and wonderful things I have seen come in and out of ski boots. Um, I just never think to do that. Half the time it's because I have no idea where my mobile telephone is within this crazy shop. Um, and so I just don't take photos. Also, sometimes people are really self-conscious. Um, but like wounds from people just putting up with pain and like their skin disintegrating, like materials falling apart, really weird home DIY jobs that have (laughs) gone astray. Um, there's, there's all sorts of horror stories and sometimes it can be because the boot fitter did something incorrectly and maybe left a tool in a boot. Like I've found like a dental pick tool inside of a ski boot and I'm like, oh, you've been skiing this for two years because we've been missing this tool for two years. Like yep. I found a pen, a pen inside a ski boot that someone had been skiing for like a year. Yeah. Yeah, uh, dead mouse inside yeah, someone's ski boot that was dehydrated and shoved into the toes. And they were like, my toes on my left side are like super jammed. And I go and I like pull their footbed out and out comes this dead mouse. And I'm like, mm-mm, glorious. That's a luckily, <laughs> luckily, I used to be a podiatrist out in Western Queensland and I'm used to dealing with like maggots and gross stuff like that, that it takes a lot to surprise me. Um, but... Yeah, we see some really weird and wonderful things or like weird and wonderful things to make adaptions for. So anatomical anomalies, injuries, um, people with various special needs that they need their boot to accommodate for. I love doing that. I find it really fascinating and super satisfying when someone who thinks that they couldn't ski, um, you can make an adjustment to their boot that makes them ski. Yes, Um, And that's why we do it, because that's like the most rewarding feeling on earth. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I can ski for like a full day rather than half a day, or I can ski half a day rather than an hour. And I'm like, I'll take that as a win. But like... um, like a weird like bone graft situation due to like some war story for one gentleman was like a very emotional kind of situation and we crushed it and it was awesome. So yeah, there's, there's some really cool stuff that we get to deal with and some really gross stuff too. And going on to the uh, DIY boot fitting, pick your journey folks. Um, <laughs> think about if you're going to take him 
on this journey of DIY boot fitting, if it goes wrong, is it something that I can reverse? Is it going to affect my boots warranty? Am I going to look like a dingbat if I bring this into the boot fitter? And am I going to be offended if they laugh at me? Um, I personally don't think it's a great idea, to be honest. Like even simple things like baking your intuition liners at home, nine times out of 10, people do it wrong. I hate to say it. Like I wish we were all smart. I wish I was smarter, but they come in melted. They've been overheated. They've not been set around the foot correctly. Like you're just, yeah, come in and see a boot fitter. Like uh, trying to heat plastic up, melting things, putting boots in fires, fireplaces, whatever. Like I, I don't recommend it. Like I'm all in for arts and crafts and I will talk through with the customer if I'm really unsure as to what I'm doing, I'm hoping that it's coming from a calculated area that I will take caution that if what I'm doing needs to be reversible or if it's not reversible, I am letting them know 100%. Um, and then I get to take responsibility for if their boot goes awry, whereas them coming, like if you've done a DIY home job and you're coming in and bitching and moaning at me that you've ruined your boots and like you're forcing your responsibility onto me, never is a good time. But it can also void your warranty with manufacturers. So just be super aware of the brand of boot, what you're trying to do, so on and so forth. I would say keep your local boot fitter employed. It's a, like, it's, it's not a dying art. It's still super relevant, but trying to get people stoked about boot fitting and and see those interesting cases, like go and see boot fitters. Don't just like deal with it yourself or put up with it. Like they want to help and it's cool and they find it interesting. Like, and unfortunately boot fitters don't charge enough for their services. I'm terrible for not charging what I should. So, you know, throw them a little cash, um, but go expand their brains, be that cool customer for, for them for the day. Um, you'll create a really cool relationship. I think you really summarized it well, because realistically going and seeing your boot fitter, having that experience, walking away with a better end result. And the biggest thing is just not putting up with it. I have like friends that I ski with that are always complaining about like the smallest little, like, oh, my ankle bone hurts. I'm like, what are you doing? Like go. I mean, I wish I was still boot fitting full time, but I'm not. It's like, go see a boot fitter. It's going to take 20 minutes and you're going to have a better day. You're going to be skiing with a lot more pleasure and a whole lot less pain. And it's only going to take but a bit of your time. And uh, the DIY boot fitting thing, like Sam said, you know, it's your own journey. But ultimately, I think supporting the craft of boot fitting, as you've heard Sam walk through a lot of all these kind of intricate technical aspects, there's a lot that goes into it. And so the more you can kind of support that and learn from a boot fitter, the better. Totally. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was really fun, Sam. And thanks to everyone for reaching out and asking all these questions. We didn't quite get to all the questions, but um, hopefully there's additional times in future episodes where we can continue to dissect some of these questions and that people can continue to reach out and ask whatever questions they may have when it comes to boot fitting, because it's something that obviously Sam and I are passionate about. There's a lot of other really passionate boot fitters out there, and we love hearing all the different questions and kind of in, uh, what people are interested in. Yeah, totally. It's been it's been kind of cool to get my cogs turning ready for the winter. Yeah, here we are. Uh, closer by the day. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sam. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun doing part one and part two. And I think people have learned a whole lot from you. So thanks for sharing your knowledge. Yeah, thanks for listening to my ridiculous Australianisms thrown in there. Hopefully everyone kind of understood what came out of my mouth. <laughs> yep. There's there's some key phrases from Sam that are very memorable. So I hope you guys <laughs> hang on to those. And as you uh, journey into your next boot fit or you just want to dial in the boots you already have, here's some really great things to think about. So thanks again. Thanks. All right. And that then brings us part two of our very deep dive on boot fitting. Thanks so much to the audience who asked so many awesome questions. I wish we had several hours to continue talking about them. But if you still have questions, I'd encourage you to still reach out to us via the contact us form. There's always the possibility of another episode on your questions answered all about boot fitting. Um, So please continue to reach out with questions, especially if today's conversation sparked your interest or got you thinking. And that then brings us to this week's edition of what we're celebrating. And while it's pretty early in the morning and I am just sipping on a hot cup of coffee, which to be more specific is a very delicious flat white that my partner Zach just made me. And the reason I'm on this whole flat white kick is because I just spent a week in New Zealand. And so for those of you who haven't had a flat white, it's way better than a latte. I highly recommend that you check it out. But this week, I am celebrating the change of seasons. It's truly that time of year in the Gunnison Valley where you're starting to see a little bit of color turn from green to gold, and it's pretty magical. I love the fall. And while it was 26 degrees Fahrenheit at my house a couple mornings ago, and I was a little sad about it, now I'm starting to get pretty excited just thinking about some of the fall adventures ahead. And then, of course, fall is also a really exciting time because it means winter is just around the corner. And I love winter more than anything. And I'm pretty excited to get back on skis, especially after I got a taste of it in New Zealand last week. So I'm celebrating the change of seasons and our emergence into fall, a truly beautiful time of year here in the Gunnison Valley. And that brings us this week's episode of Gear 30, part two of our very deep dive on boot fitting. In a couple weeks, you will get to hear part three. And I just want to thank J-Bob for producing this episode. Jonathan, once again, for letting me take the reins and dive into these really awesome and important topics around boot fitting that I am super passionate about. And I want to thank all of you, our listeners, and those who reached out and asked the questions. And thanks again to Sam for joining me and getting our wheels spinning about boot fitting and having us think a lot about some of these really important topics. All right. We'll talk to you all again real soon.